Kevin Kurz of The Athletic. The Islanders are not out of the playoff race uh, yet. Uh, it's a long shot. We know that. But let's say, you know, we're looking at a, an interesting offseason. Have you begun to think at all about what your summer might look like in your planning and maybe to expect the unexpected from the team? Well, a little bit. I always get antsy to book some sort of an off-season trip <laughs> when uh, you know you're sitting on all the Marriott points and they get uh, they start to burn a hole in your in your phone or your pocket or whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't thought about it yet. But uh, you know, if the Islanders, assuming they don't make the playoffs, um, you know, being in New York, I, I think I'll probably help out with however far the Rangers get. So I can't uh, I can't book anything quite yet. Understandable. Welcome to Hockey Press Pass, presented by Instat Hockey, the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village, and by HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our guest is Kevin Kurz, who in the middle of the season took over the beat of the New York Islanders for the Athletic. Before he returned back east, Kevin covered the San Jose Sharks for a decade. Before that, he worked in the PR department of the Philadelphia Flyers, so an extra soft spot for me because I'm a former Flyers PR <laughs> intern from many, many years ago. Uh, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Um, can you? It's, how did you wind up coming back, right? So I knew Arthur uh, took over the Rangers beat and you were out west. Was this an opportunity for you to head back east? How did that all come together? Yeah, it was a sort of thing just for me, um, you know, growing up in, in Philadelphia, all my family, most of my family is still here, um, still have so many friends here. Um, and from a professional perspective, you know, working in Philadelphia for as long as I did, I always felt hockey just felt a little bit more important back here, right? Um, it's just, there's just a different vibe when you're you're going to you know, early in my career, a Flyers Rangers game or a Flyers Bruins game, or now, you know, the Islanders Rangers game on March 17th was just, that was just fantastic stuff. So, um, you know, being back sort of uh, in, in more of a hockey market and, and New York is certainly that was something that was appealing to me. So it really, it was both. It, it was, it was personal reasons and uh, professional reasons. Um, and I had been wanting to do it for a little while. Uh, 10 years in California was a good run. I enjoyed my time there, but it was uh, it was just time to get back here. When you were in school, was hockey the thing? Was this the career you wanted to make, whether it be in PR or on the media side? I accidentally came upon it with a Merrill Reese internship and then a Flyers internship <laughs> oh, yeah. and then proceeded to, yeah, and then uh, proceeded to not leave, thankfully, for a very long time. How did you get into this? Yeah, I was, uh, I, I was a PR intern for the Flyers also um, back when it would have been my junior year of college. And when I first got to school, I thought I wanted to do, you know, the TV broadcasting, the anchor, Sports Center anchor, that sort of stuff. But I felt myself as, as college went along more drawn to the written aspect of it. And, you know, getting into PR, it's all sort of related, right, as you know. Um, as, as long as you know how to write and, and, and you know how to develop relationships and, and, and work hard and be professional and all that stuff and know the game, uh, you know, I think that the skills are, are very transferable. So I was in PR there for, for um, you know, seven years with the Flyers, 0203 through 2010. And then um, 
you know, I transitioned to the media side after that, which was a little bit tricky, but uh, I thought it came pretty naturally too. Uh, It wasn't too much of a transition. Can you talk about that just a little bit more? Because I I did the media thing for a few years, but it was after, well, it was after uh, 20 years with the Islanders and I had a little time and it, and yeah, I'm sure most people would agree it was more like a lark. <laughs> I, I did a little uh, blog and then I did some sports business journal and some freelancing. But you really went from a PR for a team to covering a team. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Was it something you started to seek in your final time, your final year or so with the Flyers? Well, what happened was, um, you know, my last year with the Flyers, there was just no really no no more upside growth potential anymore. So uh, I ended up working in the Comcast Sportsnet corporate office, which was in downtown Philadelphia in the big Comcast center there. And I was bored. (laughs) So uh, right right when right when uh, I got there, they started to ramp up the local coverage um, of the RSN teams, the regional sports networks, um, and Comcast Sportsnet. There were six of them, one of them in Boston, DC, uh, Chicago, and the Bay area. And they hired essentially beat writers. It was really what a lot like what the athletic did four years ago, Comcast Sportsnet did around 2011, where they hired newspaper writers or established beat writers away from their current employers to cover the teams. And it was written content. It was a obviously TV aspect. Um, but the sharks, they didn't have anyone that could logically step into that role. And I just expressed, expressed to my boss, uh, I miss being in hockey. Would you ever let me try doing this? And, and I talked to some people and, um, you know, I'd written obviously in the past, I, I had handled all the written content for the flyers website. So, and I knew the game and, and I knew a lot of people in the game. So, um, they gave me a chance. Uh, the TV stuff was a little bit tricky at first. That was not something that came naturally to me. But uh, after you know about a year, I came to really enjoy that part of it too. So it was a little bit of a transition, but um, you know it was one that uh, I enjoyed. And, and uh, as it turned out, I liked doing the media stuff uh, more than I liked doing the PR stuff. I always like to hear about the other side of players and coaches. Uh, I think about the Flyers and my full season with them. They went to the Stanley Cup Finals, and I would never expect any of them to have remembered this, but I will never forget like the ones who were particularly gracious and kind and and giving and forgiving at times. Uh, I'm wondering if mm-hmm. through the years of the Flyers, if there are any people who immediately come to mind who were that way with you with your long stay there are we talking players or co-workers uh, players and coaches mostly general yeah. managers of course i'll take a co-worker or two as well <laughs> well i mean zach hill in the in the flyers pr department was was always um such a resource for me and and um I, you know, I interned under him and, and he gave me really my first taste of the business. And, and he's still one of my closest friends now, 20 years later. Um, there, there, there are really a ton of fly, people in the Flyers organization that uh, I got to see, uh, fortunately enough, a couple of games ago when the Islanders were there. Um, and obviously it had been a couple of years, but uh, it was just before the trade deadline. So the Flyers had all their scouts in because I'm sure they were all huddled around the table the next day. So to get to see people like Paul Holmgren and Dave Brown 
Um, Ross Fitzpatrick, who's a longtime scout there. Um, Barry Hanrahan's our assistant general manager. People that have been there really since I was uh, an intern um, that uh, were always just so good to me. And uh, I, I still consider them friends. So it was great to see all of them. And um, it, it really is. And actually, the Islanders, it sort of reminds me a little bit because the Flyers had the Broad Street bully years of the 70s. And, and a lot of those guys are still around, whether it's Bobby Clark or uh, Joe Watson, Bob Kelly. And now, you know, what I'm learning being in covering the Islanders is a lot of those players from their Stanley Cup teams that are only a couple of years uh, removed from the Flyers Stanley Cup years. The, all those guys seem to be entrenched in the community. And it's really just a cool thing to see, I think, that that – it's been how long, you know, more than 40 years, more than 40 years since these guys were, uh, had such an impact on the community and the, the city that they played for that, um, they, they still hear and, 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 and their accomplishment accomplishments still resonate with the fan base. What is your, now that you've been at it for a while and now you're at the athletic for these last few years, what is your approach to the beat? It's probably evolved, but I guess my question is more like, the Islander fans are starting to read you, see how you are on social media. Uh, but is there a particular <laughs> approach? I don't mean that badly. I love your, I love your, um, your, uh, your. Sp- I can be a wise ass sometimes. Well, yeah, also, so. I like the fact that you save it for, uh, you save a lot of it for the coverage as opposed to, but every, every, it works different. Yeah. Some, I always, let me ask you a question. The people who are re- relentlessly tweeting play by play are they doing it something my only theory is and i'm not criticizing them my only theory is it maybe it's possible it's helpful to go back and they use it as notes maybe <laughs> or, or maybe they're just <laughs> that's the only reason i can um, think i'm sorry uh, i mean you know what I, what i try to do during games is if if there's a notable play that happens i'll, I'll write it I'll, I'll make a note of it on a on a word document and, and that, those are my running notes. Um, do I want to, I don't, you know, I don't want to do that and then tweet and then you're looking down at your laptop the whole time. I mean, you know, to me, the most important part of this job is watching the games. Um, you know, I, I get into the, to the, to the advanced stat stuff a little bit, but to me it's, it's watching the game is still first and foremost, the most important thing you can do as a beat writer. So um, I try not to waste my time too much on Twitter. If people want to follow along on the play by play, by all means follow the, you know, half dozen people who are doing that already. It's um, that's just my approach. And I'm not saying that's the right approach, but that's just my approach. Yeah. I was, I've always just been fascinated by that and wondered if there was, I'll have to, you know what, in all (laughs) fairness, I'll ask one of the people who do it and, I appreciate. I mean, that. most people are most people who are following along. They're they're watching the game already. Yeah, and the and, and the part that in. sucks, and, and this isn't Andrew's fault or anybody else, uh, Andrew's. But then, like today, I'm still getting tweets about what happened in the second period last night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I get. I you know this is my problem. This I, isn't anybody's fault. This is just my problem. I, I've yeah, and I, and I I've I've had this conversation with dozens of colleagues probably over the last few years i i think i think people in our industry not just sports media but media in general overrate twitter over overrate the twitter reactions um you know if if 90 percent of people agree with something you've written and 10 percent don't who who are going to be the ones that reply about it on twitter it's going to be the 10 percent who 
think you're way off base or think you're an idiot or so, you know, I think the silent majority just sort of reads what you're doing and goes about their day. And, and the people that disagree are the ones that are overly loud or overly confrontational, um, have nothing better to do with their lives. <laughs> so I try not to spend too much time on Twitter. And I actually had this, uh, I advise, I saw someone that, that, that is a colleague who was getting a whole lot of crap on Twitter. And I sent her a quick direct message. I said, listen, you can change Twitter so you only see replies from the people that you follow. And that's what my setting has been for more than a year now. And it's <laughs> it's life-changing, I think. So that's that's my little Twitter rant. A friend of mine, I've, and actually I've heard this from a few people who work in studios or, or analysts, and, and we get the positives of Twitter. I'm going to promote this broadcast on Twitter. And if I didn't have that, I, I wouldn't have a platform to promote it. So uh, this isn't like an anti-Twitter thing. It's just more about the uses of it. Mm -hmm. But what these people and who are studio hosts and analysts and game analysts say have all said to me in the last year or so is like, what happened where it just seems like all we do most of the time is respond to Twitter, to what's on Twitter, as opposed to just bringing fresh, original, critical praising uh, right. perspective. So, you know, I, I wish we'd, we'd lay off that a little bit. Yeah. And, and it can be helpful when, when, you know, if, if, if you see a bunch of people talking about one specific topic, it's like, okay, well maybe that's something I should explore further that maybe I wouldn't have otherwise. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it can't, I don't think it can be helpful. It can be helpful sometimes, but I can also think it, I also think it can be more of a distraction or, or more of a hassle than what it's worth. I brought us there, but I want to bring us back to the original question, which is about your day-to-day -day approach to the beat and what you're, and really it, because it's the athletic, because it's subscription-based, you are, you are working for Islander fans mm -hmm. or people who care about that team specifically. So what is your mm -hmm. approach when you get up in the morning and uh, tackle the day? <laughs> um, you know what I try to do, um, you know, when, when free trade deadline is a little different. So we got through all that and, and, you know, leading up to the trade deadline, our editors have, you know, they, they, they suggest some pieces that they know readers are going to find interesting. So that, that can be helpful. But, you know, if you're just talking about a general week where the team plays three games, um, basically, I just try to pay attention to what's going on. Uh, and, you know, over the course of two or three days, there's going to be some sort of topic that presents itself, right? Um, you know, for example, uh, I thought coming out of the trade deadline, the fact that uh, the the Islanders kept Semyon Varlamov was was interesting and and when you try when you go through and parse some of what Lou's quotes were and some of what Barry said and some of what the teammates have said about him that to me was a topic that was you know deserved a little bit of uh, a, a deeper dive um, you know right now it's Barzell and Wallstrom together something the fans have been clamoring for for weeks it seems like um, you know I'm not going to write about that after one game I'm going to wait until they play six or seven games together and then, you know, maybe explore that a little bit deeper than, than, than some of the others have, or, or at least I'll try to. <laughs> um, and you know, what, what's good about our place too, is uh, they'll give you the time to dig into deeper topics uh, for feature stories that you want to do. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm trying to 
get up to speed as much as I can on, on all the players on this team, some interesting angles. And it's a little bit harder to do that since we can't go in the dressing room and everything's over zoom. And, you know, I really haven't had a personal conversation with, with anybody yet other than Barry and Lou. So, um, that makes it a little bit more difficult as you, as you know, Chris, um, you know, the personal relationships are so important. So hopefully that opens up next year, but, um, you know, I, I, I do feel like after you've been doing this for a while, if I'm not someone that needs to lay out a whole agenda for the next month, um, I just feel like, you know, if you're covering a team again, over the course of a few days, some, some sort of topic is going to pop up that, uh, that you can, I, you know, if you're, if you're good at your job and which I hopefully think I am, then, you know, you can, you can explore it a little bit further and, and hopefully come up with something interesting. No, you're very good at your job. What is the, the difference? A, a <laughs> pandemic aside, and I know it might be tough, right? But, or maybe with your expectations, yeah. what is the difference between covering the Sharks and covering the New York Islanders? Or what are some of the differences that you might see? Yeah, well, I'll start with a similarity. And that is, you know, in San Jose, I thought that the Sharks community was unique because that was the only team in San Jose. And they were often overshadowed by the 49ers, by the Giants, by the Raiders when they were in Oakland, certainly by the Warriors. Um, so they, I think they felt a little bit under what's the word I'm looking for? They just, they just felt a little overlooked, I think on the sports scene when, when the sharks were making these deep playoff runs, um, and, and certain reporters and certain media outlets would only show up in you know, the second round or whatever, and they were nowhere to be found for the other seven months. And, and I feel like Islanders fans are kind of the same way where obviously I don't have to go through the list of teams in New York, right? Um, there, there's the big one on Manhattan, but, uh, you know, I think they, they kind of look at that team and, and look at their community as 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 not niche community is the wrong word, but maybe a smaller community. But but because it's a little bit smaller, it's more intense. And so I think those are similarities between the Islanders fan base and the Sharks fan base. Now, you know, as to the differences, um, you know, that's a good question. It's East Coast and West Coast are two different areas. I do think Sharks fans were a little bit more passive, and, and we're seeing that now. I mean, the, the, you know, the team has struggled for a couple of years, and that building is empty. And I think there are more reasons than just because the team is poor that the building is empty, but that certainly doesn't help. Um, but it hasn't, it's been interesting yeah. that you bring that up because it's the Islanders have had a rough season right, for a lot of good mm-hmm. reasons in some cases. But there's been an intensity around the fan base to the trade deadline, right? To the games. I mean, their wins against Ottawa and Detroit over the last week, pretty good buzz in the building for a team that at the time went into the week 20 points out. So that, that, and that, and by the way, as you know, it hasn't always been that way, but that is a, it's a good sign. People care. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's, again, like getting back to why I wanted to come back East is because I, I get this, it just, you can feel that passion a little bit more and, and it makes our, make, makes our jobs more enjoyable. Very cool. Um, did, what was your take on, did, was there anything that Lou Lamorello said or a couple of things that he said after the trade deadline that surprised you to me? And I appreciated this. He seemed to he not show his hand, but be pretty candid about what needs to be done next. Did that catch you by surprise? 
Well, no, because I haven't spoken with him enough times for, for him to really catch me by surprise, and I'm still trying to get used to him. I th- but like you said, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're, what you're alluding to is the fact that he said there's hockey trades in the works. We so have to make some hockey trades. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously a lot of these conversations that general managers have with other general managers leading up to the deadline, it's not necessarily about making a move on deadline day, but it's talking about a future off season move. Right. So, you know, when he says that sort of thing, I wonder maybe does he already have something in his back pocket where is the, is the framework for a hockey trade already there because otherwise he's just putting pressure on himself. Right. Um, so that, that was one thing I wondered uh, about that. And um, again, like I said today, I thought he was, I, I thought his, the way he was so direct about how important it is to have two goaltenders and with a guy like Varlamov who was, uh, probably the most likely Islanders player to get moved, right? I mean, if, if you had to put odds on who was going to get moved, he was probably at the top. So the fact that they keep him and and um, seem to suggest that that he wants him here next season too, uh, I, I thought was telling. Really telling, and and great point about uh, him uh, perhaps having the bones of a deal in motion. How has Barry Trot been to deal with? I really. From afar, like somebody I don't know, uh, but you know, I I enjoy watching his post game press conferences. In the first period, yeah. I thought we did this. Then in the second period, <laughs> it's kind of no one like it, or I, I'm not aware of anyone who's been like it. I know that first answer that he often gives um, uh, MSG Network might, probably doesn't make for a snappy quote when he goes through the, every period of the game. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, I'm always thinking like a writer uh, or the PR person doing a transcript maybe yeah. back in the day. But uh, is he is he is our, uh, the insightful, articulate gentleman that he plays on my TV? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Um, I, you know, he strikes me as a guy who, who just – he just – he loves coming to the rink every day. And I know that sounds cliche, but he does strike me as one of those people that just every, every little thing about the game and, and every aspect of whether it's the travel or the practice days or the morning skates, or even dealing with us, he just, he seems to enjoy every little aspect of, of the sport and of the league. Um, and, and that's probably why he's been so successful, but uh, yeah, he, he's very detailed and, and thank, you know, thank God he is because um you know, and, and he told you know when I when I talked to him, I had I didn't actually meet him until we were in Buffalo, whenever that game was, and you know I'd been on the beat for a month and a half, two months, and I hadn't actually seen anybody in person because we're all on Zoom, and um, I, I finally asked Kimber, the PR guy, I'm like, can I just can I just meet Barry, please? Can I just just to have some FaceTime with him? And and fortunately he 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 did, and and I, I hung around the rink after the morning skate in Buffalo, and. I mean, I probably chatted with Barry for 25 minutes or so, and it was it was it wasn't anything on the record. It was more just to get to know each other, sort of thing. And um, right there, I could tell just just how passionate he was, and how much he just seems to enjoy every little bit about the game. And you know, him and I had a couple players in common that that I was I I knew before Scott Hartnell he had in Nashville, Joel Ward he had in Nashville and Washington, and, and Joel Ward was one of my all time favorite players to deal with. Um, so. That was that was uh, that was important for me to to sort of establish a relationship with him, and you know now that we're seeing these guys in person, I, I think it uh, it 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 should help. And um, 
you know, now we've got five weeks left, so we'll see how this goes. But anyway, getting back to Barry, um, yeah, he, he's great. And I, I do generally believe him when he says that everything he's telling to us, he's saying to us is, is what he's saying to the players, um, whether it's critiquing Oliver Wallstrom's game or um, if he has something good to say about somebody else. Uh, the message that he's relaying to us publicly is, I think more times than not, the same message he's relaying to, to, to the players behind closed doors. Fantastic answer. I love that story about Buffalo, too. I, it's my opinion. Not every coach would have done it. Ah, I'll get to him some other time. Right? There'll be yeah. some time on, yeah. on the island. I'll see him in a couple of weeks <laughs> or so to, to not only do it, but, set a, but also take extra time uh, to just chat informally off the record. It's fantastic. Yeah. 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 It was really helpful to me. I appreciated that. The, um, what do you, what do you expect to happen this off season with the club? That's a good question. Um, and I, you know, and I know you're paid to write about yeah. these kind of things. I'm just, I'm just trying to yeah, get your right. general right. thought in late March. Well, you, you know, you wonder, Everyone says they built that building in order to lure free agents, right? And um, it's it looks like they should have some cap space to play with. So, uh, well, you know, and if they if they free up more cap space before now in free agency, does that um, does that help lure someone like a like a Forsberg or something like that uh, to this team? So, I think that'll be really interesting to see who they pursue in free agency because uh, I think they're you know they're going to have to they're going to have to do. A mul- uh, you know, multiple things, right? They're going to have to make probably one or two hockey trades. They're probably going to have to sign one or two free agents. Um, I still believe the core of the group is strong. Um, and I think the last couple of weeks have been uh, an indication that they probably don't, you know, they don't have to blow this up it, and they couldn't anyway with some of these long-term deals. But um, you, you've got the most important position in goal, you, you're all set there. You, you know, you really needed an offensive type defenseman, and Dobson, Noah Dobson's taken steps to do that. Um, and then, you know, everyone talks about the leadership and the culture in this group, and I'm a big believer in that stuff. And, you know, we all have personal experiences to go on, right? And for me, I saw firsthand when Joe Pavelski left the San Jose Sharks, the whole thing went to hell. And that wasn't just because of the culture changing. Obviously, they became a less talented team too. Um, but when, when Joe Pavelski left, and you brought in an Evander Kane, who was not popular, and and who the you know the organization did not handle very well either, uh, that's a big part of the reason I think the team went so south uh, so quickly. So I'm a big believer in that culture stuff, and, and it does seem everyone I talk to seems to think that it is strong here. It's a good culture. It's a good group. And with that in place, um, I, I think they can probably add a few pieces. It's going to, you know, they're going to have to make the right moves, obviously. That goes without saying. But I do think with the right moves, this is a team that could compete again next season. How much of a passion do you have for what it is that you do? And are there other things that mm-hmm. you could see yourself or would like to do, whether that be outside of sports, in sports, another style of writing, reporting? Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, not I've not I don't think too far ahead like that. I, I still enjoy the day to day of this job. Um, I still enjoy you know coming up to a road trip here, one game, twenty four hours in Boston to to cover a road game. Um, 
you know, I, especially I think as we get more back to normal and, and again, hopefully we're allowed in dressing rooms next season, um, that'll sort of be rejuvenating. Just, just moving to New York has sort of, uh, sort of been a, a boost, just an energy boost for myself. Um, so, you know, I, I still enjoy the job and, and, uh, I'm not looking to do anything else at the moment. So, uh, I'm good where I'm at. What do you like to do? I just would like to get to know you a little bit, especially since you've been here. We know that Gross plays the drums, right? So I need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, what, is, what are there things that you like to do when you roll into a town like a Boston, or 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 when you're back in New York or Philadelphia? Are there things you like to do uh, when you're not? What are the things you like to do when you're not working? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big history guy. So I like I would rather spend my off time in a city and go to a museum than go sit on a beach. Um, not not to say that I wouldn't like to sit on a beach from time to time. But, um, you know, when I, I do read a lot of, of uh, nonfiction type books, uh, a lot of World War Two stuff lately. So I do like a lot of history stuff. That's sort of my my um, something I'm interested in when I'm not when I'm not at the rink. And um, and like I said, blowing through all those Marriott points and, and bouncing around some European cities is usually uh, my favorite thing to do in the summer. Favorite places that you've been so far in Europe or, or that you I really like London. Yeah, me too. Yeah, London, Barcelona. Um, you know, the, the big ones. Prague is a great mm -hmm. town. Um, so I always, you know, I've never gotten to cover any of the uh, when when the NHL teams go over to the European cities. And I know they haven't announced that yet. I don't think they've announced that yet for next season. So. I always hope that uh, the team I cover is going to be involved in one of those. It really suck if the get sharks get, out of it. really suck if the sharks get picked to go go to Helsinki or something. Yeah, they probably will because they've got they've got a bunch of Europeans, including a pretty good defenseman on the, on the back <laughs> that, end. That, so. that is true. Uh, Michael Russo had uh, mentioned you're uh, a good friend of his. It makes me yeah. When you, when you have you ever get like jammed up or you're not too sure on either how to write something or handle an issue with the team or something like that. Is there another writer or an editor or somebody who you or might, you know, I can think of the people I go to for advice. Uh, are there people who you might go to when you need a sounding board? Yeah. Mike, Mike's always been great to me and, and he helped get me on board the athletic as a matter of fact, that that's a story for another day, but that was four years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, almost five years ago now, I guess. Um, I, there's a lot of colleagues that I work with that I just have a ton of respect for. Jeremy Rutherford in, in St. Louis, um, I consider a friend. Uh, Josh Cooper used to cover Nashville Predators. He's an editor for us now. He, he's helpful to me um, many times. And um, so I, I, I am very thankful of the group we have at the, at the Athletic. We have a really good NHL group. So it is helpful to um, not only bounce ideas off of them, but you know everyone's such a resource when, whenever we whenever we need advice about a certain team or if there's a team we don't watch very often or you're you're bouncing around a hypothetical trade in your head, you can easily just message a colleague and and more times than not they'll get back to you right away. Kevin, thank you so much for doing this. I uh, really wanted to. I always wanted to speak to you even uh, before you got the Islander beat. Then when you did. Definitely wanted to try to get to you before the end of my first season doing this. So thank you. Um, I love the reading. I love the stuff you're producing. And uh, good luck. Good luck the rest of the way. And can't wait to see what comes up in the offseason. No problem. That was really great from Kevin Kurz. Appreciated hearing from him. Also a, a fellow former Philadelphia Flyers intern. The, the Flyers, I, this goes back so long, but 
really is, you know, it's one of those things maybe as you get older, it, I just appreciate my time. I had an entire year with them. They lost to Edmonton in game seven of the 1987 Stanley Cup finals, but I was with them from the beginning of the season till the end. And it informed so much of my career. And even dare I say it, my life. So it was really nice to connect with Kevin and hear about his plans for the Islanders and the beat and everything else. I'm going to come back with a question uh, from you and from Lou Pellegrino after this quick read for the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village on Long Island's North Shore. Food and drink, beer and wine, fun and friends. They are located at 307 Main Street in Huntington Village. Go to the website, MainStreetBoardGameCafe.com for more information. You'll find out about how the staff can help you find the right board games, card and party games, to games for families, to strategy games. They have it all. Main Street Board Game Cafe. Find your crowd. Unplug your game. We thought we'd take uh, this opportunity to address another question that was sent in by the fans over the last couple of weeks. And go for it. Lou, what do you got? This question is going to come to us from, is has come to us from Angela. But before I get to that question, my God, I have to come up with a list of questions that I just want to ask you. I know... You know, I've asked questions on this podcast, but I'm telling you, I would love to. I mean, you you dealt with two versions of Ron Hextall, young Hexy and an older Hexy. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear some wild stories about him because I always loved Ron Hextall. But well, Angela, okay. Well, we're gonna lock in. We're gonna lock in, and we can let people know now. You know, because now we have to do it because we've talked about right. it. This the show is going to end in early to mid April. And the one of the final episodes will be just that. So we'll take some of the ones that the fans have asked uh, for about my career. And mm-hmm. again, not about me, but about the experiences that I went through and about, you know, which is really more about the Islanders and the people. And uh, and then the questions you have, we, that is an episode that we will do. I don't, it, it might not break uh, records, but we're going to do it anyway. All right. Uh, so today's submission comes from Angela. Angela asks, who was your favorite head coach or coaches to work with? The, the easy answer, of course, is that they were all great. And that would be a cop out. Um, I don't think I had a bad experience with any of them. Bill Stewart was a great guy. He just happened to make a comment about, did you see our lineup after we lost to the Rangers in Madison Square Garden, which got him in hot water because if you're a head coach, you should never be criticizing your own lineup, no matter who is on it. Uh, In fairness, Barry Richter, bless his heart, was probably our number one defenseman in that particular (laughs) game against the guy. I like Barry. So I just wanted to give it. Yeah, and that's not, you know, I, I think Barry would take it in the proper spirit, too. But I just, just for context, for people who don't know, if you Google Bill Stewart and the Islanders, if you Google Bill Stewart and junior hockey, you'll hear about him trying to smuggle a player in the bottom of his bus in the Ontario <laughs> Hockey League. If you Google Bill Stewart and the Islanders and maybe the Garden or Did You See Our Lineup or Peter Body who covered it. I'm trying to think Alan Hahn might have, too. Mark Berman at the Post. I can't remember. Um and Tampa Bay, because the team flew to Tampa Bay, and Bill wound up having to meet with all the writers and clarify his remarks. But as for my favorite, Al Arbor is in a category of his own, and it'll always be one of the great blessings of my life that I got to work with Al, uh, who became a uh, almost like a father figure to me, or really a father figure to me. And but the. The one answer that stands out for me, it was just two years, is is that I always think back on is Peter Laviolette. 
And it's not just because Peter went on to win a Stanley Cup and continued to this day to have a very successful coaching career. He's taken all of his teams except for Washington to the finals or some great heights. He took us to great heights with the help of a good lineup in his first year. What I love about Peter, and I think you were around this time, uh, mm -hmm. Lou, was we got off to the great start. But even before we knew we were going to wind up being 11-1, 1-1, know, two or three games in, that particular season, for whatever reason, sponsors, space, we had an idea to do a post-game show at the Coliseum in the, I think it was called the NASA, it wasn't the Nassau room, it was the whatever, whatever, you know, it changed names all the time, but whatever the bar was downstairs at the Coliseum. And <laughs> I go back to the, pitch, I go back to the pitcher's days at the Marriott. <laughs> yeah. And we would, uh, so we, we would do this post game show and early on, the whole idea was that we would have win or lose an Islander go over. And we had a Morton's gift card, which, hey, every little bit helped. Some of the guys were nice enough to give it back to me, so I ate a lot of Morton's <laughs> that year. Um, but uh, we, we would bring somebody over, but we didn't lose any of those games. But what I remember about Peter is he had this great spirit, and I've heard that he did the same thing in the community in Nashville and Philadelphia, too, was I think he recognized, not for his own sake, not for ego's sake, but let's try to build something here. So he said, I will go over after every game, win or lose, uh, and for right from the beginning. And so he did. So after the game was over and he did his main media obligation, he'd always come over. In addition, we'd have players. It actually got to a point where like the show, and we didn't have endless time. This wasn't a podcast. The show would sometimes go on long because like guys enjoyed it. I would walk them through the bowels of the Coliseum and they'd go in the back door. And to this day, corny as fuck, I, I, I accept it. But we'd go, we'd open this door and this room. And it, we talked about Kevin, about the spirit of Islander fans. This room, all the tables would be full. The bar would be full. People would be standing. And yes, it's easier when you're winning and they get off this great start. But there was an energy in that rinky-dink <laughs> room in the Coliseum yep. that was just off the charts. And I give Peter a lot of credit for driving that as if, you know, most coaches win or lose would be like, let me know what I got to do, when I got to do it. Peter, first NHL job, new team, rebounding, uh, a revitalization of an organization. He identified, let's try to make this fun. And I... And I think it just it played a big part in that being a memorable time for the team, at least making the playoffs for the first time in a long time. Uh, he was Trotz before Trotz got here. He was the first incarnation mm -hmm. of Trotz because he just brought in this work ethic. He brought in some of his guys, some guys with Boston ties. You know, there was Sean Bates and a couple of other guys that just, you know, scrappy, hard-nosed guys that really stuck up for each other. Now, granted. He did have Yashin. He had a coin. He had Chris Osgood, who became available in the, uh, I want to say, a free agent draft where the Islanders had the first pick. Waiver draft. Waiver draft. Thank you. That was a waiver, waiver draft. draft and Pekka, Pekka for uh, Payette. Right. And Connelly, you know, so, so, so the ago. Islanders retooled and brought in some really good players. I mean, this isn't like, you know, the case of Moneyball, where you never hear uh, the movie Moneyball, where you don't see Mark Mulder, Tim Hudson, and Billy Koch and all the other, you know, pitchers that the Oakland A's mm -hmm. had. But, you know, Peter came in. And I'll never forget this. 
because I remember watching him play on the Olympic team. I remember him being a very prominent figure. And all the commentators used to say, he's got the makings of an NHL head coach. This guy's going to be an NHL head coach. And then all these years later, you hear New York Islanders sign Peter Laviolette. And I'm like, oh my God, that's the guy from the Olympic team. Wow, he's finally a head coach at the NHL level. This is going to be great. And I'll never forget, I have friends that live out in Massapequa. And we went to All-American Burger in Massapequa, which is a, a buddy, a buddy, of, a buddy of mine's grandfather's establishment. He started it back in God knows when. But anyway... Down the road from there, my friend had to stop off at a car dealership. So we go into the car dealership, and who's getting his new car? Peter LaViolette, wearing a Yankees polo. So I see him, and I walk over. I've never met him before, but I said, ah, Coach LaViolette, how are you? He's like, oh, hey, nice to meet you. What's your name? You know, we exchange pleasantries. We're talking. And I said, um, what's with the Yankees shirt? I said, I bet you all your friends back in Massachusetts would be very angry that you're wearing it. He goes, don't say anything. Yeah, he goes, I had to go to a Yankee. He went to some function, like a golf, and he goes, this is the only pull. He goes, this is the only college shirt that I had. That's what it was. He was doing, he goes, this is the only college shirt that I had with me. And we started talking. Years later, okay, I'm living in Chicago. Not years later, but a year or so later, and the Islanders are still a hot team because of him. He gets on a national radio show that I'm producing. So he calls in early, and I have to schmooze him. And I said, Coach Laviolette, I said, you're, you're not going to believe this, but I met you like your first week on Long Island at such and such car dealership, and I gave you grief about wearing a Yankees pole. He goes, oh, my God, Lou, I remember our conversation. It was just so funny. What a great guy. And those those were fun times. I wish he I wish he was on Long Island a lot longer than he was. Yeah, he uh, he's had an interesting career. He doesn't – he was – good with the media our two years here and i don't know if it's because he's either felt like he's been burned but there are there are there are coaches in this league and general managers especially who are media favorites like they are constantly written about they are constantly praised uh, in a lot of cases too often and i know it's because they play the media game. Now I'm a PR or former PR person in this league, so I'm always up for people who want to play the media game. But it seems fairly clear to me that Peter doesn't. I know sometimes he'd be stingy about giving out information at the morning skate or whatever. But he, and granted, Washington is a team that he took over and they were good. Now, granted, the guy who replaced Trotz did not last long. And now Laviolette stepped in and they lost in the first round. So he hasn't had the success there yet. This is his second full season with him, if I have that correct. Um, but he he doesn't seem to get any publicity, any credit. And I, um, I've i seen his resume. I Ever since he left the Islanders, I don't know how else to say this, I, I help him update it a little bit. And you would think this would be absurd, but... If you just look, you have to win the cup. We say this all the time. The cup is all that matters. He has one. Barry Trotz has one. But if you look at what he's done, he went to the Islanders and revitalized them with the help of a good lineup, but was every bit an equal player mm -hmm. in that to Pekka and, and Yashin Osgood and, and everybody else. And then he goes on to Carolina. And I remember when he took over Carolina and I saw – like who they were signing, I was like, oh, it's going to be like a rebuild. Nope. They won the yeah. Stanley Cup soon mm -hmm. after. Uh, it, he goes to Philadelphia. They didn't finish the job, but they get to the finals. Goes to Nashville, doesn't finish the job. Like he, But he's had so much more, like him and Trotz 
of the current, current guys throwing out Cooper, of course, um, have had a lot of success, and yet Laviolette doesn't seem to be respected nearly as much as the other guys. So that's an interesting one to me. So Peter, you know, not a not the favorite, but a favorite moment in time on that job. You know, they've had some really good guys behind that bench, and I was obviously young, very young, when Al Arbor was the coach. And I remember the 92-93 season, and, you know, on this very podcast when Ray Ferraro was on, he talked about Al and the leadership and just how Al knew how to push the right buttons. And I guarantee you, if you go back to the dynasty teams, it's the same thing. Al was Al. There was no, you know, faking it. This is what he would tell you to do. And if you didn't do it, you were on the bench or you were gone. I mean, I I remember hearing stories about a player named Pat Price who, you know, according to, I I believe in one of Stan Fischler's books, told the story of how, you know, Al left eggs in everybody's lockers and Pat Price took the egg and smashed it on Al's Mm -hmm. head. And then Pat Price was gone. And then also in the Never Say Die video, Bobby Nystrom says it as well. If guys show in practice that they don't want to try or they don't want to work in a game, then we're going to run at you and they were gone. And, you know, that's what I love about this podcast. I know I've come to it late, but just listening to the stories, Jamie McLennan's story about Al and, 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 you know, Ray's story, Ray Ferraro's story about Al, stories about Al. I wish I could have appreciated him more because I caught the tail end of it, but everything that I've seen, everything that I've read, everything that I've heard, they, they just don't make head coaches like like that anymore. And then and then you had, you know, Lorne Henning take over and Lorne Lorne was a nice guy. I met him on numerous occasions. Um totally thought he might have been a little too soft spoken to be a NHL mm-hmm. head coach, but he had the Islander lineage. He learned at the right hand of the father being Al Arbor, you know, and you go on from there. Butch Goring thought he was going to be a great coach, did great things with the Utah Grizzlies. It's just he wasn't handed a, a, a great lineup. And when LaViolette got here, it was just the the breath of fresh air that was just breathed into the life of the Islander fans. And, you know, you go back to that that season and you go back to that playoff series against Toronto that if they won that, who knows what would have happened. But it was just fun. And then, you know, there were some guys that came after that, but no one really left the mark that Olaviolette did. Ted Nolan, maybe. But Olaviolette mm-hmm. and Trotz, for me, are the two that are as close to Arbor as you can possibly get because of their system, their attitude, and they win. There's really nothing else you can say. Your uh, comments about the guys telling the story about Al Arbor and, and how these coaches can mean something has inspired me to i'm gonna I'll close this episode with a story it's not not one i've ever said uh, publicly before but you know this was kind of the spirit behind doing this podcast was to not only talk to people in the media but um share anecdotes and, and give a little bit of a peek behind the curtain this is a particularly personal one and it'll just take like two or three minutes it's about al arbor in the uh, mid to late 90s uh, my dad passed away at the age of 60, 61, 61. And it happened to be around the time after Al had his second coaching stint, then we had another night for Al, not when he came back to coach the game, but we had a night for Al to um, to celebrate his career. I wasn't able uh, to work that weekend because my dad passed away on the Thursday or Friday before him. And 
Uh, I remember watching the game. I remember very vividly, like, you know, being sad in the morning. But, of course, I had the game on and seeing Rick Bonus behind the bench with the Al Arbor pins and, and all that. And the the funeral for my father was then the following Monday at Our Lady of Mercy in Plainview. And if you think about the weekend, it, it's still a little bit of a different time back then, 25 years ago, that, uh, you know, that Al night is on the back page of Newsday, if not the front page of the Sunday section. He was on the front page of the Sunday sports section. And, you know, and Al was very much in the news. He'd come back for this moment. And uh, at the funeral at Our Lady of Mercy, my father's Italian. He's got a, a lot of cousins and uh, had a lovely crowd. And you know this as an Italian, there's a lot of energy in that room. It's a church, but before the funeral, it's buzzy because right? <laughs> people are coming back from the Bronx and all over. And there's a lot of hugs and kissing. And it's there's a buzz before the funeral, which is all appropriate and lovely. And I'm in the front of the church getting ready to do my thing, including uh, give the eulogy. And then all of a sudden, the place gets really quiet. And I just think, oh, the, you know, the priests, oh, we're due to go to the back. And it gets, I'm telling you, blue, totally quiet. And I look and um, Al Arbor and his wife, Claire, came walking down to take their seats. And it was like, you know, there were other people there who were known. Uh, but this is Al Arbor, and even for all these Italians, and, and by the way, this, they weren't just all Italians, right? There are other people of other ancestries there. Everybody just stopped and looked at him. Uh, and needless to say, uh, you know, that was an extremely moving moment. And Al had that charisma, right? He had that impact. He could walk into a crowded church and turn everybody uh, quiet. He took his seats. I walked to the back and, and we, we began the, the funeral. So uh, one of those things you certainly never forget. Wow. That is some story. There's really nothing to add to it. I think that's a perfect you know mm -hmm. period point to just say, that's it. Wow. Definitely. Um, our thanks to Kevin Kurz. My thanks to Lou Pellegrino helping us finish strong here on the air and off the air. Um, our sponsors. The, hunting, uh, the Main Street Board Game Cafe in Huntington Village, Instat Hockey, HelloFresh, and especially the listeners and supporters of this show. Thank you so much. We will see you with our final episodes of Islanders Forecheck and Hockey Press Pass in the next week, 10 days or so. Thanks again, everybody. Bye-bye.